We're coming to the end of 2016, and I wanted to make an end-of-year pitch for support for the SRB podcast. Since February 2015, I've conducted over 59 interviews on topics as wide-ranging as Putinism, post-war Kiev, Belarusian nationalism, Stalinist terror, Russian punk rock, Russian porn, Soviet gypsies, and many, many more. The topics have been an eclectic mix to give as complex a picture of Eurasian history, society, and culture as I can. I've interviewed some incredibly knowledgeable people who've generously given their time to offer us all interesting and thoughtful discussions. I think it's safe to say there isn't a podcast on the region like it. Though the podcast is free to listeners, it's not free to make. The SRB podcast is a one-person operation. Each episode from start to finish takes about 15 hours to produce. Reading on average a book a week is like being back in grad school. Editing out all the ums, kind ofs, you knows, and rights take up to five to six hours alone. Then there are hosting and equipment costs. So if you like what you hear and find the discussions valuable, especially at a time where thoughtful discourse about the region is so scarce, please consider becoming a monthly patron or making a one-time donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. It's safe to say that the situation in eastern Ukraine has disappeared from the headlines, and the conflict looks frozen. But people, many people, still live there on the front lines and must deal with the conflict and its impact on a daily basis. What is it like in the Donbass? What does the future possibly hold? For answers, I turned back to Brian Milikovsky, who I interviewed in June 2015, to get his impressions from his work with internally displaced persons in the region. We also talk a bit about ecological protests in Russia at the end. Brian Milikovsky has been living in Ukraine and Russia since 2009. He has worked on both ecological and humanitarian issues. Today, he lives in Luhansk Oblast in the Donbass region, where he works in an aid organization. He occasionally writes about his impressions in the Donbass. His most recent article is The Church Caught Between Russia and Ukraine for the Fair Observer. Here's Brian Milikovsky. When I talked to you about a year and a half ago, um, you were working with refugees in Kiev and Kharkiv and, and in the Donbass. Are you still doing this work? And if not, what are you up to now? Yeah, I am still doing that work. After a brief pause uh, after our last discussion, I returned to the Donbass, to Luhansk Oblast, which is one of the two provinces. And I have continued uh, working in now the humanitarian sector with, well, we say refugees. Of course, they're internal refugees, which officially we call internally displaced persons. Uh, in the primarily in, in Luhansk Oblast, but we also work uh, in the neighboring and more well-known Donetsk Oblast. And so I now work for an international NGO. Um, since uh, our, all our organizations are entirely apolitical, just so that nobody even imagines connecting what I'm going to be saying today to who I work for, I won't mention the organization, but it's, you know, an, an NGO. And, and what's the situation there like with refugees and, and internally displaced persons? And, and what are you doing specifically with your work? The situation with IDPs is, is constantly in flux. 
you know, it's believed that the height, as many as 1.7 million people may have left the war zone, which includes both the, the non-government controlled areas and the government controlled portions of the Donbass, the frontline zone. But that's not exactly clear if there were ever really that many people because some never really left the, the non-government controlled area, which we call in shorthand the NGCA, uh, and maybe just registered in order to get some of the benefits available to, to IDPs. And on the other hand, many people who actually did leave have been mobile, living their lives on both sides of the line, or have gone home from a perception of that things have gotten safe enough that they can, that they can do that. So that situation is in flux. But what, what a lot of organizations do, there's sort of direct assistance, which was food, you know, the classic sort of humanitarian box full of food, uh, which millions of which were given in this war zone uh, in the course of the conflict, literally millions. There's money, because in a major way humanitarian organizations now try to do is give people the choice to purchase what they want and what they really need, which is by giving them money uh, instead of food. And then quite a few of us, and what I actually do is is sort of even more interesting and sometimes satisfying, which is uh, giving out small grants to help IDPs or civilians who live in the frontline areas basically develop micro-businesses for themselves, which is a, a stage that generally comes a bit later in any humanitarian crisis on, on the way to recovery. But unfortunately, this situation in the Donbass is so strange because it is a war, and it, but it's no longer a war that is making the international community necessarily think, oh gosh, we need to you know, put, put huge amounts of resources into this, like say Syria or Yemen or, or other sort of burning conflicts, Nigeria. And yet it's not, there's no peace deal signed. And so the sort of official starting point of recovery uh, that comes in most conflicts has, has not begun. And we're sort of stuck in, a, in an in-between. Now, let me get a, your location here. So you're not in the so-called People's Republics. You're on government side of Ukraine. Yeah, I think it's it, yeah. Sorry, it's it's worth worth remembering that although we often talk about the Donbass as if it's all presently under control of separate slash slash Russians, in fact, geographically more than half of it is under government control, under control of Ukraine. Population wise, more than two thirds of the cities and industrial capacity of the region is under separatist control, but. Because of population movement, because of IDPs, it's really difficult to say who's which, on which side there are more Donbass residents at this point. But I, yeah, I live in uh, in the new capital of Luhansk Oblast, which is called Severodonetsk. And and what's the general atmosphere in in the region as you've encountered it? Right now, it's exhausted. When I first came back in the summer of 2015, uh, and then in the the uh, say October 2015, there was a one of the periods when the ceasefire was actually seeming to be working, the sort of Minsk ceasefire. And there was just this palpable relief. It was like people literally sort of, I mean, in a, figuratively, but also literally, they were like coming out of their basements because that's where people live for, during the shelling. And sort of sitting out on their front lawns, sort of basking and thinking, wow, there's no no heavy artillery in the distance. Like, is it really ending? And thankfully, the war never went back to a full out stage. The really horrific stuff we saw in 2014 or the winter of 2014, 2015. But it's been a constant cycle of basically the ceasefire sort of sets in more or less. 
then starts breaking down, then escalates, 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 very often before an international meeting of some kind in Minsk or in Europe, then just on the cusp of like, oh God, the war is going to start again, they sort of, because somewhere a deal is cut and, and the cycle goes back down, but never back to as peaceful as it was before. So, so just sort of a general creeping escalation and a feeling like this isn't going to be wrapped up. And this is now our status quo, which is, which is, I think, just really a dragging, dragging feeling and a drag on the mentality of people who live here. So how, how do people, how do people cope with the situation? In some places, like the city I'm in, which did not suffer much from the war, I mean, there's a sort of strange normalcy to life, normalcy to life here. I mean, how, how do people cope? Perhaps there's been, you know, if, if early on in this conflict, maybe one way people coped was, was ideology. On both sides, and by sides, I don't mean physically sides, because actually the ideological sides are not perfectly delineated by the front line here. And there are people on both sides whose ideology does not line up with the rule, who's ruling them presently, which is to say there are people on this side who are unquestionably have latent separatist sympathies, and there are people on the other side who, who desire to see their cities return to Ukraine. Maybe people took refuge in ideology more earlier. I kind of get the impression now that exhaustion has sort of made it so people are even less likely to, maybe on either side, to, to, to say, well, you know, it's tough, but we just got to stick it out because this is our struggle. Of course, not every, it's, I don't want to say everyone's become apolitical and, and apathetic, but uh, I, I, sometimes you see a sort of drop in intensity and a sort of general, God, how does this end kind of feeling. And and what about life specifically in the so-called uh, People's Republics? Do you have any indication of what things are like there? Well, I want to be totally clear that for various reasons, partially because I, uh, international NGOs are really not welcome there. Unfortunately, we initially were, and then have been, and then the situation has been access being lost progressively and now close to zero. Um, I don't go to that side. I've been here quite a lot. I have a sort of specific view, which is this government-controlled Donbass, whereas a lot of journalists will instantly go to that side. So I, like a lot of people, I have to understand what goes on there by talking to IDPs, by reading in a lot of materials, a lot of opinion and news from both sides. I would say that, you know, it's a sign that at least some level of normal existence is possible in many places there because we do see IDPs returning home. And, of course, that's simply, from a human point of view, an entirely good thing. There's still a sort of belt of hell along the front lines on both sides, although lately the destruction, the, the continuing shelling has taken a more harsh form for people living on that side. Now, for instance, well, recently the deaths have been people in non-government-controlled cities uh, like, like Makayevka and Horlivka recently. But also here, there are towns that regularly have artillery flying into them, um, like Avdeevka and Taryatsk, on an almost literally daily basis. And it's, so there's maybe a, a, a sort of normal life returning on some level for people there. But just like on this side, there's enormous uncertainty economically. And, you know, I mean, it is the economy, stupid. I mean, really, that is such a fundamental aspect to people's lives that I think is often underreported in this conflict is this sort of economic apocalypse going on. You know, there are bright spots. Sometimes, like I said, you can be surprised by how much uh, uh, one city might sort of be seem economically functional. And then there are others that are just 
every single factory is is shut down you know just massive sort of under non-official underreported sort of underemployment or outright unemployment and on that side there are worrying signs that the sort of big industrial classic Donbass economy which mostly remains on that side is really creaking under the weight of war, uh, the government blockade of the non-government controlled areas, the just total disruption of normal logistics. And in fact, you can get that from surprising sources like um, Eduard Limonov, who's this you know, famous ideologue of Russian nationalism, who's been one of the real cheerleaders for, for the People's Republics and, the, and separatism and the Russian Spring. He visited Donetsk recently and wrote in his blog that just basically, you know, we're seeing our, our famous... Donbass proletariat just disappearing before our eyes. The, these mills are being shut down, maybe even deliberately to be cut up for scrap metal. It's just, we're seeing collapse. Is that the most objective view? It's hard to say, but it, it it's worrying, really worrying that there'll be a sort of economic collapse, maybe on both sides, That that is war caused. And once the war is finally done, you can't turn some of that back. Uh, so what what are the consequences of all of this, um, and, and what does it mean for the people on both sides? I mean, you you spoke about you know there's a there's a weird normalcy, but at the same time there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a there seems to be a, a increased sense of apathy or apolitical feeling that the the ideologies that mobilize people in the beginning are fading away. So what does this mean for people? What do people tell you about how they understand the conflict, why it's continuing, and what does it mean for Ukraine as a whole? Why it's continuing, why it's not being wrapped up. I would say across the ideological spectrum, you hear a lot of sort of dark muttering about how this must be very profitable for somebody, which may be all the way from, you know, uh, sort of an international conspiracy to basically a sort of very practical understanding that uh, combatants are making money. I think there uh, people may really have seized on something correct there, but it's also just sort of, I think, a general sort of natural frustration. Like if they can't cut a deal, then it must be that they don't want to. Uh, and, and if they don't want to, they must be making money on contraband, on pay for day, for combat days, or, you know, on much larger scales, sort of dividing up national resources during wartime. It's much easier to do that. So, you know, I think there's a there's a feeling, and I, I de- it definitely does cross the ideological spectrum that the that people don't see will to to end this, and their desire for it to end is so overwhelming that that disconnect makes them extremely disenchanted. You know, something I heard when I was here, especially when I first got here, was just after Minsk too. So, sort of the dust was just settling from this incredibly intense artillery duel that lasted through December to March, 2014, 2015. That was just horrific. And I got here just a little after it. And, you know, people were were coming out and just saying, how can it like, there's just no, no price that we can imagine this being worth. Like, why can't they sit down and cut a deal? Why can't they cut a deal? And, you know, you'll find a lot of ideologues, I think, on both sides who will say, oh, come on now, that's just sort of this animal instinct that people have. Like, you know, you have to stick to your ideals. You know, we can't make a deal with them, either those traitors to their country or those fascists, depending on who you're who you're talking to, which side. But for an enormous number of people, like I said, the maybe the ideology, if it was ever there for them, has, has sort of bled out of it. 
And, um, you know, again, to get back to economics, I think people have a lot of, there's this just sort of, it's like everyone's holding their breath a bit in the Donbass. And I think it extends beyond to, to much of Ukraine. It's like sort of suspended in air and everybody's not sure if it's, if when the economy touches back down again, whether it'll sort of bust open because you might, you look around, for instance, at factories and you're like, will those reopen? Right now, nobody has exactly closed them because it's like, well, you know, during the war, we shut them down. Maybe they're dangerous, like a chemical plant. Maybe there's no Russian gas. Maybe there's no coal from the other side. Maybe the other side can't get materials. And so it's like standstill. But also there's all of this sort of dread that, that quietly a lot of these plants maybe are already being cut up into, into metalome, which is this word now that has this very uh, sad meaning for people. It's scrap metal. Um, you know, people talk about uh, like, oh, you know, our famous industry now is just metalome. But nobody, I think, understands really how great that effect is going to be. But I think everyone understands the longer this sort of half war goes on with total uncertainty, with control of econ- the flow of economic materials by literally by armed men, with all of the massive corruption and contraband and, and distortion that goes on with that, with the total disruption of logistics, both at a local scale and a sort of bigger national scale. Um, you know, talking about a, a region that was producing 25% of exports, for instance. Nobody really knows just how big that's going to be. And so you're sort of suspended right now, waiting for the war to end, I think. And then there might be a real moment of sort of, uh, you know, and you really hope that moment of reckoning could come as fast as possible so that then the thoughts about dealing with that can really begin. But again, we're suspended in this half war. So what does it mean for Ukraine as a, as a whole? You know, I mean, to just talk about economics, you know, we have seen a sort of, you know, pretty frightening de- decline in, in national GDP and with no certainty about whether these regions will continue functioning as part of the Ukrainian economy and what it will take to to revive an economy that's had so much pulled out of it by this conflict. I think we may be looking at a economic blow to Ukraine as serious and maybe as long-term as the fall of the Soviet Union. And, and what about relations between locals across the line? Is there a lot of movement? I mean, you suggested that there's lots of movement back and, back and forth, at least internally displaced people going back home. And how has the war changed the perceptions of each other? It's, it's really difficult to say, because in some ways, maybe there is still very much a cohesive and sort of single Donbass culture that is not necessarily dependent on which side people are on. Perhaps that that is the case. I mean, as someone who's been looking at the situation for a year and a half, it's not easy for me to say exactly what. And I think it would be a mistake to imagine that the Donbass was ever a homogenous culture. Ideologically, it is not homogenous, no matter what whichever side wants to think. There is not a just absolutely, you know, monoblock, for instance, of pro-Russian sentiment in this region. But that sentiment is definitely large enough that you could not say that that was all just a myth. Um, I mean, and in many places it's absolutely dominant, but in others it's not. It can vary from city to city based on what kind of right, things down to, for instance, what kind of factory they had, whether it, it brought in engineers from other parts of the country or employed sort of really just a classic sort of, you know, proletariat style workforce. There's so many little intricacies that are fascinating that we often don't know about, but then become, maybe they become more visible when we're looking at how people interact. There are some people on this side, I, you know, they, they say, I, I'd rather associate myself now more with Ukraine than Donbass because 
because now Donbass is so associated maybe with, with separatism and, and I can't buy it, buy into that. There are people on the other side who say, you know, of course, there are many people, unfortunately, tragically, who say, you know, I, I have no connection to my identity anymore to, to Ukraine. Do they think of themselves now more as some of them maybe want to think of themselves more as part of a greater Russian society? Some are, are hoping for us to maintain a sort of distinct, in their minds, Donbass identity. I think in general, you'd find those that just enough common human experience between people living in this region means that at a, a personal, normal person level, there is not not a huge amount of, uh, of hostility. And you see people living on both sides of the line. You see government-controlled communities becoming uh, often very, very warm and open, accepting communities for, for IDPs from that side. I hope there's enough common between people that you could maybe imagine for a start, the Donbass stitching itself back together someday. And then at a, at a larger scale, that stitching together with the rest of Ukraine really, really happening. What about the, how do people view the respective um, militaries, militants, uh, separatists on one side and the Ukrainian military? How do the locals see them? Because after all, the reason why I ask is that you have a situation here that both sides were experiencing and continue to experience living under war. And so how do they view the respective, you know, combatants in this conflict? That's a really loaded question. Uh, I'll try to, I'll try to be fair. I mean, there are people on, if I look at this side, there are people uh, who are, who deliver food to, to soldiers who think of them, call them Nashi Zashitniki or Zahisniki, if they are Ukrainian speakers, who really believe sort of these guys are our line holding our, our, our city inside our native country. There are people who look at them as occupiers, uh, who use the same terms, Naziki, which is, means like a little Nazi, but really means uh, what they're really referring to the National Guardsmen. A anything I say here, I don't want to condone. I'm just trying to ex pass along what I hear in, in these kinds of towns. Uh, who, you know, who would view those people as, as occupiers, sort of hated, oh, they came from Western Ukraine to tell us how to live. Similarly, from what I understand, on the other side, you will find a lot of people who think of the separatist armies, or maybe even in some way they think of the Russian army, depending on whether they acknowledge, perceive that it's present. That's another question altogether. As, you know, their protectors. And other people, including some who, for instance, I regularly read what they write on, on social media, who say, you know, we didn't ask you to come. And here you are defending us and drawing in fire. There's a lot of people who I, I know a lot of people who sort of have a plague on both their houses kind of attitude to, to the militaries that are firing at each other in the cities they live in. Just like that, the sort of general ideological diversity of the Donbass also, I think, is reflected in how people think about uh, about the the armies around them. Yelena Racheva from Novaya Gazeta came and did a very, very powerful piece where she sort of laced back and forth across the across the front lines, visiting uh, cities that are facing each other across the front lines. And I think she picked up on that and also picked up on a real feeling that you, you could find in both sides of, this is really not okay when we have heavy artillery in, in our towns or, or rolling, literally sometimes rolling around our towns on wheels firing off at each other. I mean, people are really just trapped in a sort of firing range sometimes. Now, you mentioned the prospect of knitting these people's republics back into Ukraine. 
And the Minsk process, as far as I understand it, calls for its reincorporation in, in some form or fashion. Is this even possible? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the million-dollar question, um, because that really is what essentially Minsk lays out in a, in a relatively, well, deceptively straightforward process. You know, it's like, like one, two, three, four, five, six points, and yeah, you know, you do those, and basically the conflict is over, theoretically. You know, I think everybody really asks that question. I hear very often, like, like, no, no, how could, how could we just function? together again. And I hear that from, I hear that from maybe people uh, in, in government controlled areas and I read it from, you know, from people on the other side. And that may be just sort of a, a sad and resigned, like, gosh, I just don't know how we could really function together. Or it may be a sort of flaming, we don't want them back. Or how could we ever live under that flag again when they fired at us to sort of summarize the most common ways you hear it expressed. Minsk is a really tricky deal. Because the, at the beginning, it's incredibly painful and maybe like undoably hard for Ukraine because it basically says, you know, we're going to hold elections while there's still an armed separatist force and while the, you know, the border is not under control. So essentially, you have to more or less accept them as a normal presence. And then also, it's, you know, one of the little tiny points in there is that there should be then a, a, a people's militia founded in these territories, which essentially will be like a latent separatist army, if is one way to interpret it. There's an expectation that maybe the guns will never be put down. They'll sort of be put on safety. And, and then the border will be con returned to Ukraine's control. But, you know, there will be this people's militia there that, uh, you know, which is just an incredibly hard conditions for Ukrainians to accept and for Ukraine's government to do. But then later in the Minsk process, you know, is the idea that, yeah, actually the border gets returned to Ukraine. And that may be a bridge too far for, for Russia, who's obviously one of the decision makers here, because, because it creates the risk for them that, uh, you know, there's a lot of fear of a sort of um, second operation storm, which is what when Croatia saw, you know, when Serbia was no longer able to really actively support its the sort of breakaway Serbian Republic in Croatia. At some moment, Croatia was just able to sweep in, take over complete control again, and there was enormous outflow of, of, of Serbs. You, you read about that a lot, that like there's a fear that, that any uh, lowering of control there will allow Ukraine to essentially bring this territory all back under its official control, which means, you know, the discrediting of, of, the, of the project that Russia has been supporting. So... That's sort of the geopolitics. Could it, you know, can it happen? And that makes many people think that it's just not like that neither side could really see this through. But then there's the personal question, like, can people function together in one country again when they were quite when on their behalf, there was quite recently a war being waged? You know, I don't want to say they were waging war with each other because I think many people here don't feel that they're waging war. A war is being waged on top of them. And, and, that is just so difficult to say. I think an enormous number of people here could and do and want to live in one country again. I think there are ideological goalkeepers at both ends that may make that impossible because it, it will take such a fundamental ideological compromise, which will, looks like a capitulation by one of the sides to make that functional. And I'm not sure the large mass of people who I think would be ready for 
basically a lousy, a very a lousy piece, a very ideologically suspect piece. I'm not sure that they will be able to get past the sort of, like I said, the sort of goalkeepers who are uh, in both sides of the conflict, closer to power, louder, sort of control the information sphere. You mentioned earlier that, and, and rightly so, that the attention on the situation in Dabas is pretty much fell off the international headlines. It's even fallen off the headlines in Russia uh, to a large extent. Uh, it's certainly not part of the propaganda mill anymore, the standard propaganda mill anymore. And supplanted by Syria in many ways, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and then of course, you know, here in the United States, I mean, there's there's no information um, being being written about or discussed about the situation there. What about in Ukraine? Um, how does how does the Donbass play? in uh, Ukrainian politics and the information sphere there now? I mean, of course, it can't, it can't really have left. And if you look at, for instance, the country's um, number one news source, just as far as people reading it, which is Correspondent, which is sort of like the Ukrainian Newsweek. I mean, I read it every day, and, and about half the news relates to Donbass, which certainly you would never have seen before the war. But yeah, even here, there's a fatigue, with, of course, because as I said, um, I think a lot of people just sort of see this um, ideological and military stalemate that is sort of becoming irresolvable. And so some some days the, the war might be overwhelmed by um, the new tariffs on, on, heat, on heating, which have gone up. Yeah, I think part of the exhaustion is just an exhaustion of not no one really knowing how this could end. And so they're sort of just just accustomed every day to a trickle of reports. These towns hit by artillery by this side, these towns hit by artillery from that side. Uh, no no deaths today. Are you saying that the exhaustion also exists in other parts of the country, not just along the front lines and in the region? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say it's uh it's sort of a general just sinking in uh that this can't this isn't being wrapped up anytime soon. Uh and it's and like I said, since the ideology is going down, maybe the intensity of some of the worst things that you might have seen, uh, sort of dehumanization of people in the conflict zone that was you could see when the hottest of the fighting has gone down, thankfully, and, and there's they're sort of a more human perception of, of people. But it, you might wish there was um, maybe in this relative calm a real attempt to to understand what people here want and, and, and need and how... What what will be needed to function again, even without the so-called People's Republics coming back in? Because there are lots of questions, even within the territory that's that's under government control. And I think maybe just the the total the general exhaustion hasn't made a lot of those questions be asked. And and so it just leads again to a sort of okay, all of a sudden, if Minsk magically become starts working, if maybe one of the sides forces its its the people it's supporting to 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 do it, to actually implement Minsk, would be this sort of moment like, now we have to actually make this process work and like function again as one uh, one political system. I don't think there's a lot of actual preparation to that necessarily going on. The picture you've painted is is incredibly bleak. And the spread of just exhaustion and apathy and not really seeing an, an, a light at the end of the tunnel, it makes me wonder where the will to even solve the conflict is going to come from. It's really tough because people keep waiting for an outside factor to change that. They're waiting for the game-changing element. You know, some people may have hoped or feared it would be Trump. 
not really clear that's going to happen. Some people on both sides are just waiting for either Ukraine or Russia to economically collapse, uh, which is, you know, fanciful. But there are people on both sides saying like, oh, just wait it out, you know, till they, till they basically collapse. And there isn't a game changer. It hasn't arrived yet. And that's why really there are it places it's happening in... There's many, many more thoughtful and interesting articles in the Ukrainian press about, like, let's try to really understand where we stand today. But the process needs to be much, much larger if we can imagine that potentially the game changer might be movement with within the country to say, we just can't let this become our status quo. For Moldova, letting the status quo, you know, what happened with Transnistra become the status quo was, was awful, but in the end it was a sliver of their country, although that's obviously distorted their politics and, and relations between people enormously. You can look at any of the breakaway republics, but these are so much bigger, and this is such a big chunk of of the country, population-wise, GDP-wise, importance, that to just let this settle into a sort of perpetually frozen, non-functional deeply corrupted by contraband, not no normal economic or even and even disrupted normal human relations between people. I can't let that become the status quo. But how Ukrainians in general, I guess there's just nobody sees the, the mechanism by which you could sort of say, wait, stop, we just can't accept this as normal. And, you know, a significant number of people would say, you know, absolutely disagree with what I'm saying and say, how could you even imagine this? You know, what needs to happen is that the aggressor will be punished. And there are many people who would say, you know, who live in the so-called people's republics, how can you say this? We will never live under them again. And it's just, that's that. But amongst that big mass in the middle and maybe really, really wants somehow to make it come back together, the the means is just not clear to anybody. Well, I, I want to switch gears a bit because since I have you and, and ask you about another hat you've worn in the past, and, and that is working in an environmental stuff, um, particularly in Siberia. What did you do there? Well, I actually worked in the Far East, uh, which is uh, which Russian Russians consider yeah east of Siberia, which Russian Russians consider a distinct region from Siberia, and which actually, uh, as far as the kind of nature that you find there, is quite distinct. Yeah, I worked there for ecological organizations, forest conservation. I worked on uh, essentially working with timber companies mostly to try to identify the those places in the landscape that would be best left alone in order to protect rare species or maintain, you know, sort of unique forests, especially virgin forests, and then adapt forest management in certain ways to try to, because you, can, you can't always just protect everything, of course. So that, that was a very, very different uh, work that's really actually more connected to my, my actual specialization. And, you know, you follow the environmental and e- ecology in Russia and environmental movements. And ecological protests in Russia come in a variety of forms. You know, you have the the Himki forest struggle uh, is the most well known, I think, to people outside of Russia. But now you're having, you know, there's protests about protect city parks. And most recently in Komi, there was a a protest by an entire village to uh, protect a river from industrial damage. Um, How do you understand the ecological concern and issues and movements in Russia, and the, the, their broader efforts to protect the Russian environment? Well, I would say Russia has different kinds of ecological protests or ecological activism. There's sort of 
uh, a very similar kind of ecological activism to what we have, for instance, in the United States, which I would say is sort of middle class. That was Himkiles. But also it might be forests that are not, you know, right out of Podmaskovia that they see every day, but instead sort of a general desire of Russia's sort of urban middle class to see, you know, wildernesses protected. Just just like the United States, which leads to all of the sort of potential tensions that, well, you know, you want something protected in a remote place that's not where you live and that people actually live there and make money cutting trees, for instance, which you always, which is always part of the difficulty of conservation and, and the balance that you have to strike. So there's a lot of that kind of, uh, I would say, sort of middle class, maybe slightly abstract, not in a bad way, but just, you know, this is not about people's everyday lives. This is about their desire for... Russia to maintain many wild places and many of these fantastic species like the snow leopard, the Amur tiger, uh, the Far Eastern leopard. Then there's, you could sort of say, working class ecological protest, but it's not even, how, how to describe it, it's, it's like livelihoods protests by people who depend on nature in an extremely direct way for both feeding themselves and eking out some form of of an income. There's an enormous amount of towns out in the Russian taiga in many different regions, but particular not not even actually particularly the Far East, because there was recently protests in Karelia. So there are an enormous number of people who who live off of collecting what we in forestry call non-timber forest products. Mushrooms, certain kinds of berries, pine nuts in Siberia and the Far East often not known that most of the world's pine nuts come from Russia and are gathered wild from the forest. They're organic. Catching fish, trapping sables in the Far East, these kinds of direct livelihoods from the forest, which can be threatened by sometimes pollution, like these protests in the Komi Republic. That was partially people in cities just worrying about ecology, and that was partially people living upstream and or downstream in small towns downstream from factories saying hey the pike are poisoned in our river like we can't live like this and and those are really fascinating protests like i said there was one recently in karelia that was this little tiny town uh, out in the forest that maybe used to probably be a, a logging town and now the state enterprise is long gone and the forestry authorities gave approval to make make a sand pit near the town uh, for constructing roads, a big a big sand pit like a quarry, and the local these old folks, because most of the people in this Taiga village are, are pensioners, sort of camped out. You know, they did a sit in basically, like you can't cut down this forest. This is where we pick mushrooms, and you think like, oh, that's you know that's romantic, and it's like no, like like mushrooms are like a major portion of their yearly income. They pick them and they sell them in Petrozavodsk, where somebody comes and buys them and sells them in St. Petersburg. And that's a really important source of income for them, maybe second only to their pension. So for them to sit it out in the forest was absolutely not about their sort of romantic devotion to that forest. It was about, you know, you can't take away one of our only, the only things we can make money on. Activism, when I was in the Russian Far East, activism was about there you know if if we could get middle class support for many of the things we were doing uh just in sort of general about conserving biodiversity when there was an effort to protect the korean pine which is one of the two species that makes edible pine nuts i mean it was nothing abstract at all people in villages were absolutely on board there was genuine popular movement to in the end actually ban the logging of that of that species entirely which was done by, at the time, he was Prime Minister Putin in, in 2010. And when I left Russia, 
uh, in t to return to do this work in Donbass in 2015. The phone calls I was getting most often on my job were uh, from forest beekeepers saying, hey, can you help us? They wanted a logging ban of, of linden, which is the most important pollinator tree for bees, and they make all their money off forest honey. So that's a very different kind of protest and really interesting. And finally, you've been you know working in the in the Donbass region for about a year and a half now. So uh, what's next for you? That's uh, that's a good question. Um, I um, I hope maybe in the maybe next year my present present work will probably end in the spring. I have have been thinking about trying to do some writing about what I've seen here and about. You know, really trying to, I try to get my head around all the time, like what will, what will happen next here? And I think uh, a, a lot of getting our head around that needs to happen. So I think that may be what's next, but uh, looking at it, some, some pretty large uncertainty in the near future as to what I'll be up to. That was Brian Milikovsky, who has been living in Ukraine and Russia since 2009. He has worked on both the ecological and humanitarian issues. Today, he lives in Luhansk Oblast in the Donbass region, where he works in an aid organization. He occasionally writes about his impressions in the Donbass, and his most recent article is The Church, Caught Between Russia and Ukraine, for the Fair Observer. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. This is the last SRB podcast for 2016. So see you next year. Bye. So this is Christmas. And what have you done? Another year And so this is Christmas I hope you had fun The near and the dear ones The old and the young A very Merry Christmas And a Happy New So hey.